rather than having made prudent life choices all along, most of us tend to only seek healthful solutions once we've had a scare in the form of a diagnosis or event. This is HealthScape with Dr. Trevor Campbell. In this program, we'll show you the techniques, innovations, and holistic ideas that you can use to put yourself on the path to better health. Now, here is Dr. Trevor Campbell. Hello, and welcome to HealthScape. I'm your host, Dr. Trevor Campbell. Today's topic is spirituality and transformation, a demythification. Contrary to current popular belief, a spiritual quest is neither a major nor a pointless investment in time and toil. Rather, it is the resuscitation and liberation of what already exists in us in dormant form, as well as a return to source or holism. The benefits are anything but loud or ostentatious, yet they remain formidable, durable, and unique. Quite apart from the, long, the lifelong benefits, it is a mainstay when aging in a failing entropic body where focus on an expanding consciousness, namely one's own, will most often ease one's final passage, bringing more calm and peace both to oneself and to those that witness and attend. And so, what is then to be done? Dr. Richard Miller is an excellent choice to ask if you would love to learn more. He has previously been a guest on the show. A brief bio follows. Dr. Richard Miller is a clinical psychologist, author, researcher, yogic scholar, and spiritual teacher who has devoted his life to integrating Western psychology and neuroscience with the ancient wisdom teachings of yoga, tantra, advita, Taoism, and Buddhism. Developer of the research-based program, I Rest Yoga Nidra Meditation, Richard is the founder of the IREST Institute, co-founder of the International Association of Yoga Therapists, and former president of the Institute for Spirituality and Psychology. He's author of Yoga Nidra, the IREST Meditative Practice for Deep Relaxation and Healing, and also the IREST Program for Healing PTSD. Richard leads retreats and trainings internationally, emphasizing enlightened living in daily life. Richard, welcome once again to Healthscape. So great to have you back with us so soon. Oh, we have a lot to you, discuss Trevor. today. Yeah. Thank you, Trevor. It's nice to be here with you. Great. So in Western societies, spirituality is no longer considered light. Sometimes one could say even not, not even polite conversation. Um, and it often elicits a guarded response, occasionally some eye-rolling. What do you think has led to the decline in interest and perhaps even lack of regard for spirituality? It's an interesting statement, Trevor, because some years ago, the American Psychological Association, for instance, did a survey of all the psychologists across the United States and found that in something like 80% of conversations with their clients, spirituality was a topic that came up regularly. So we know that this is a deep topic that's on everybody's minds. 
And yet in um, mainstream conversation, many people feel gun shy, mm-hmm. uh, inadequate in bringing it forward as a conversation, I think because there's so many controversial religious beliefs that have been encultured that it can often right. lead to conflicts and uh, difficulty navigating the conversation. But that said, I myself am privy to so many conversations with people on, on a daily basis where spirituality is really a central topic and, and very important that we, that we weave it into our daily uh, conversations. Yeah, well, it's, I'm glad you point that up because I believe the American Psychological Society is, is the biggest professional organization possibly in the world. Is that right? It is definitely one of them, I would say. Right. Yeah. So it, it really does um, reflect uh, this understanding probably worldwide. Well, thank you for that. The, the reticence or pushback also, I think, uh, lies with its um, tie to organized religion, you know, where there's been abuses of a power for centuries now. But I think it has to be said that the effect, um, that spirituality in effect is really an approach to life, as we know, and a way of perceiving, a way of living, a way of thinking. And it wasn't spirituality itself that caused the abuses. It was more often that spirituality was used as a shield against the outrage, the understandable outrage at the abuses. So it's, it's a very unfortunate link, but I don't think that's the whole story. At its heart, spirituality is characterized by a search for meaning and the quest for a connection to something higher than ourselves, perhaps even our higher selves. Now, that's what's most often quoted because everyone's spirituality is obviously different in some ways. Surely these are worthwhile goals for most people. So the reticence uh, is still not fully, well, it may never be fully explained, right? You know, as you're you're speaking, what I'm uh, recalling or coming to mind is that it is not spirituality or religion that is the issue that gets in the way. I think it, it is the ism when it becomes a doctrine of belief rather than an embodied experience so that then when we're conversing about it, we're really conversing about beliefs that haven't been fully understood experientially. And that to me is the crux of the, of the issue right. that I'm really concerned in, I, in my conversations with people with the question, what is your actual experience? How do you embrace or embody these principles into your life, not as beliefs or concepts, but as actually day-to-day, moment-to-moment ways of living one's life? We have, you know, the Sunday churchgoers who on Monday revert back to what we would say is very non-spiritual, non-religious ways of living life. What what Mm -hmm. I think of spirituality, it's not something we're doing, but the way we're actually living our lives and really becoming loving, compassionate, kind human beings. Yeah, I agree. Walking the talk is essential. 
Um, you, you also bring up a very interesting point because so much of these beliefs are there's there's no real rationale. Uh, I mean, they may be true, but they kind of can't be argued really. It's a, because it's a matter of faith, right? But people have said that in a in a way, spirituality is like meditation. You don't really have to understand it, but you need to experience it, and you um, cover that race very, very well, I think. Yeah, and aren't we all concerned at some point in our life with questions like, who am I? Yes. What is another? How did we get here? What is this universe right. that we live in? These can get buried in the day-to-day -day, uh, movements of regular life, but they still are on everybody's minds at some level or another. And so I think these are important questions because they really help us when we really delve into them, grapple with our daily lives and come to profound understandings that are very uh, effective in how we relate to one another as loving and kind human beings. Mm -hmm. It's a way of living really. For sure. It is a way of living. I, I tell people meditation isn't something we do. It's a way of life. And mm -hmm. we're learning how to feel very deeply, not just connected to ourselves in answering these questions, but it should drive us into a very deep connection with everyone around us and the world around us where we lose a sense of separateness and we really mm -hmm. do feel an underlying essence that is we might say the essence that has given birth to the entire universe. And we are right. a part of that, each of us. Right. To see And to see it yourself in another person's shoes. Absolutely. Um, that, that, that really the, is the epitome of spirituality. Right. Now, as spirituality, it probably is, I, I don't know if you agree with this, and I'd be very interested to hear your take, obviously, it's probably as ancient as consciousness itself. I mean, at the point certainly where the human mind developed the ability to reflect back on its thinking and behavior. And also is, as we know, the cornerstone of history and art, thought, culture. But in recent years, it's been viewed as retrogressive. And this again, to the original point, almost um, anti-intellectual, anti like you're not very bright if you're interested in it. I see elements of this. That's no, not all pervasive. And even an anti-science stance. And we've heard a lot about science and, and along with scientism over the last few months. But you know, if you think about it, how can it be an anti-science stance when science is a way of knowing and by not by no means the only method of knowing? There's this thing called experience. And it's essentially tool, a tool. So you've got a way of perceiving and a way of living compared with the tool. It's like category errors. What is it going to take to dispel this tenuous comparison, do you think? Well, interestingly, uh, Theodore Roosevelt coined a wonderful phrase that comparison is the thief of joy. Um, oh, really? Did she say that? Yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful recognition when we compare ourselves to another and sometimes when we get into these very intellectual conversations where comparison becomes the central element, it, it can lead to conflict readily. My yeah. 
you know, my, again, I, I want to bring it back to, I think these are central questions. Who am I? What is another? And yeah. how do I interact moment to moment that are critical to us as human beings, that if we are to resolve the major conflicts around the world, we have to heal this um, sense of separation that everybody carries within them. Uh, it's a vital, um, the vital aspect we, we as human beings really need to confront. So um, I, I do find that when these conversations are engaged with curiosity, Right. Uh, then they lead to deeper understandings and, and we help not get into con conflicts in our conversations because we're really interested in what yeah. are the deeper meanings here. And so we have right. to come to these conversations with deep curiosity and that willingness to be open to listening to what the other has to say. I, I think mm -hmm. that's a crucial need that we all have is to be heard and seen can we, when we talk about conversations that have to do with religion and spirituality, really open ourselves and our hearts so we really are there trying to hear and listen to what the other person is really saying and equally, can they do the same with us? Right. Um, we are going to take a few minutes to have a brief guided meditation um, and and and... Dr. Miller and I will discuss the uh, dynamics and so forth after this interval. So Richard, if you would like to go ahead, please, um, that would be great. Wonderful, Trevor, thank you. Uh, let me give a few words as I move into it, which is, sure. can we fundamentally recognize and feel through meditation something that we all share in common that can give us foundations and portals for really awakening to a deeper understanding of what we call spirituality, which is basic and innate within all of us. So we all know what it's like to simply be. So I'd love to do a meditation on the simple feeling of just being. I like to say, you know, when it's a lovely summer's day and we're just resting back, and we've completed our tasks at hand, and we're just taking a moment of time out and simply being. Mm -hmm. So I'd love our listeners, as I'm doing myself, to drop down into this very simple feeling of being that we may have known as children, and oftentimes we can sense here and there when we take a time out from our daily regimens. And I'd like to make six simple inquiries and see if we can all come into a shared feeling of being. And the first inquiry is when we're simply resting as being, and I'd like you to reflect and answer these questions or inquiries from your own firsthand experience. So we're setting aside book learning, anything we've been taught or told. So we come to our own firsthand understanding. When we're simply being, answering this from the felt sense of being, how might we answer the question, 
where am I as being? What's my location when I'm simply being? And if you don't go into thinking, but just sensing when you're simply being, can you feel how it brings you to both a localized presence in your body? But as you feel this simple feeling of being, how it becomes more like a feel that emanates in all directions, that if we're keeping our eyes closed, we may even lose for a moment the boundaries of our body and feel ourselves more as an unbounded field of presence. And as we feel into it, the second inquiry becomes when we're simply being, what begins to happen to the thinking mind and our sense of time? And can we feel how as we settle more and more into simply being, how our thinking mind may begin to slow down, may even drop away, and we step out of past and future. And conceptually, we could say we're not even in the present moment. We're just here as this essence or presence that we are. And the third inquiry, which is really important, we can inquire as being, when we're simply being, do we lack or need for anything? Mm -hmm. And can we feel how as being, being somehow transcends the feeling of lack that we might otherwise have when we're in our thinking mind, but when we're simply being, we all of a sudden step out of lack into a fullness or a completeness that's already innately within us as human beings, a basic okayness. The next inquiry is this sense of being. Can we feel how familiar it is? That it's something that we've always known. We may not pay much attention to it, but that it's an innate quality that we've had since birth as children. And it's easily tapped into when we take this moment of time out like we're doing right now. The fifth inquiry is being something that we're doing or is being its own doing. It's not something that we have to do. And that how being can accompany doing. So can you feel how, as being, you could be resting here in this moment, listening to me. You could be going for a walk and being. You could be working and still have the felt sense of being. And the final inquiry is if someone asked you to describe this simple feeling of being, what words might you use? to describe it. And many people have used words like peace, love, 
well-being. If we deeply nourish this sense of being, as I'm asking us to do in these, just these few minutes, we can begin to feel perhaps a deeper peace, what all traditions have often referred to as the peace that patheths all understanding, that is innate within all of us that we can call forward and then nourish it through these little and often moments of meditation all day long. Mm-hmm. And if, I, if, if we take just a few more moments, simply be with our eyes gently open or closed in a soft vision, more and more letting go of the thinking mind into moments of simply perceiving, say the sounds around us, the touch of air on our skin, the sensation of our body. You may begin to notice how you feel more and more deeply connected to yourself. But with our eyes open and gazing out onto the world around us, we may begin to feel a deeper connectedness with the trees, the mountains, and other people. That the simple feeling of being is something that all spiritual traditions have recognized and invite and encourage people into, it helps them feel this deep sense of interconnectedness with everything around them, with life itself, that can be a gateway to a deeper spiritual understanding of our place in the universe, and that each one of us is a valued aspect or expression of this underlying mystery or essence some people call God that has given creation to each one of us and the world around us. So as we complete, we might say this meditation, might we carry this felt sense of being with us into the remaining time that Trevor and I have, but also nourish it and take it into our daily life. So it becomes the underlying ground or foundation from which we meet each moment where we may find then as I have, that when we abide and reside as being, we tend not to get into conflicts We don't nourish violence. We really nourish understanding, curiosity, and inquisitiveness with whomever we're with, which goes a long way towards resolving conflicts and helping us meet each other as expressions of the divine, where we can enter into deep conversations about religion and spirituality. But we're really deeply curious then in meeting each other in this same ground that we all share in common. So I like then to think that meditation, again, isn't something we're necessarily doing, but how we're living our life. So while I'm ending the formal meditation right here, I'm beginning what I think of as informal meditation, that 
we're continuing to carry with us as we move into the next moments of our life, nourishing this underlying felt sense of being. So Thank you. there's my meditation, Trevor, that I'd love to offer to you. Thank you, Richard. I, I must say the meditations I've done, they always take me back to what I regard as my first connection with spirituality, which was my imagination. I had a very overly active <laughs> imagination. And any time there was a gap in play, uh, my parents said I seemed the most engaged, like when there was no one there. Yes. And it's that loss of there's nothing except here and now. Yes. Uh, um, it, so it's really a kind of regression, but we tend to think of things medically as regression, as going backwards. Um, and it is regressing to a time, but in a good way, where I, you know, I mentioned in my book, just throwing chips of wood on standing on a bridge in a suburban little stream and um, tossing wood chips and just watching them wiggle away. And I mean, uh, you, I, it'd be hard to tell a child of similar age today that that's an award-winning pastime because of, you know, the panoply of the diversion and the distraction they have. So it, it always brings me back to that, to that stage. Well, it's a wonderful portal because whomever I work with in my retreats or when I work with individuals, I always like to start actually with this meditation mm -hmm. it brings us back to a level playing field from which then we can look at the difficulties or sufferings we might be having in our life. But we, we begin to meet our sufferings or our conflicts or our issues, not from a feeling of lack, but from a feeling of fullness, something that is basically okay about us. Right. I, I remember one fellow I worked with who had severe post-traumatic stress from different experiences. And he reflected, he said, every treatment program, everybody that I've ever worked with to help me with my PTSD always started with what was wrong with me, what, what I was lacking. Mm -hmm. You're starting with what's right and okay about me. And that yeah. makes all the difference. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, well, it's the glass half full, the glass half empty, but it also harks back to what I said. People who are not used to this intervention, um, short intervention, um, they can see that it's dormant. It's a case of uncovering what we're, is we're awakening it back up yes. in conscious awareness. And you just used a wonderful metaphor the half glass empty or the glass half full. And I know that we could argue immensely, is it half full or half empty? I'm interested in tasting the water in the glass. Right. <laughs> and as I think Buddha rightly said, you've been wounded with an arrow. Are you interested in me telling you all about the arrow and who made it? Or are you just interested in me taking it out? And that's really the main question. How do we relieve suffering rather than arguing about all the intricacies yeah. of it? it it makes it very solution orientated. The counseling I've done as a physician, um, uh, you know, one has clients who, who feel they're making progress by going back to the toxic narrative and finding new superlatives and descriptors, which upsets them more. We've already agreed that this was not a, a, a great situation. 
but it doesn't lead to uh, to uh, a solution. In fact, in my view, it may be less like it may less likely lead to a solution. We have yeah, to and I, I'm aware that we're narrative creatures. Um, we like to tell stories, and and we do have a need to, yes. to explicate our suffering at times. But as you say. If we just get caught in it, we are a hamster on a wheel going round and round. At some point, we need to be given the tools to step off that wheel. And one of the tools is being, because being helps us recognize in a manner of speaking, while we've thought we've been in a hamster wheel of suffering, something innately with us has never been harmed or injured yes. and is a basic okayness from which then we can meet the suffering that we need to overcome. No, it's definitely something that's desperately needed. I think specifically this sort of times of a crisis under every bush almost, uh, a crisis. Um, so I think this also touches on the point, Richard, that it's completely underestimated as a, as a life skill or, or a life um, resource you know the, the fact that it can be a shelter or even a part of a survival plan during crises uh, facilitates human connection and and a vehicle for personal transformation that can be well life-changing completely um, i also interviewed somebody earlier this year um, who, who does a lot of therapy and i noticed i had a smile a little skull on the on the desk, the memento mori, the reminder of death that medieval scholars would put on their desks um, yeah. because they were so much more educated than people who had no access that they had to be reminded that life is transitory and fickle and it didn't make sense to drown in hubris and arrogance. And my question, I was it's a rhetorical question, I believe it, it's necessary. It's almost time to dust off the skulls and again, and again, place them next to our laptop. Um, it is a wonderful reminder. People might think it's a trifle macabre, but... Um, I don't think of it as macabre. I keep death on my shoulder. It's something I contemplate every day because we know that every year we have a birthday, but mm -hmm. we also have a death day, and we don't know which day that is, but it's coming at us and we will meet it at some point. And the deeper teachings of spirituality are helping us learn how to navigate each moment so that we don't carry the past over to the mm -hmm. next moment. And this is the vital aspect of it. We are really learning both to answer the questions, who am I, what is another, you know, what is God? But we're also learning the life skills of how to meet our life in such a way, we might say that we're resolving things moment to moment. So we're not carrying over into the next moment, unleft, unmetabolized um, aspects. And this is really important because if we don't resolve our daily life questions and issues, we will take them into sleep and have very disturbed sleep where right. our brain is trying to resolve it mm -hmm. when we're sleeping. When we are able to resolve through these life skills, I think of spirituality and what, what I teach as the owner's manual we didn't get as children that helps us really become fully embodied human beings. Then 
when we go to sleep, our dreams are going to be more portent of intuitive insights and learnings rather than resolutions of deep conflicts. So spirituality to me is really about how to be a good human being operating on all 12 cylinders and really embracing life and all the challenges that it brings to us and having the life skills with which to meet those challenges and really healing this underlying feeling of separation that we carry within us that is engendered around 18 months of age for us because that's when the ego begins to develop a sense of separation until 18 to 24 months of age, none of us know a sense of separation. We're in a very primordial essence where we're interconnected with everything. And unfortunately, then we become encultured into feeling this sense of ego and separation and not knowing that the ego is simply a function that we can come to understand and not get caught in. That when we get caught into it, leads us into all these conflicts and wars that we see going on around us. So spirituality to me is very practical. It's educating us and teaching us how to live our lives in a manner that we feel a deep sense of peace, ongoing joy and well-being, and this deep sense of interconnectedness with everyone. As you said, we're walking not just in our shoes, but in the shoes of everyone around us. And I truly, when I meet another person, while At one level, we are always meeting face-to-face and personality-to-personality. We can also meet essence-to-essence or presence-to-presence, being-to-being, where we feel this deep sense that the other is actually ourself in different clothing. And when we treat each other as ourself, our whole worldview changes and conflict and violence no longer makes sense. We're really trying to lead a life where we're resolving conflicts. And that does bring up the point that people can feel sometimes inappropriately that spirituality means kind of giving up certain ways of holding ourselves in the world. And truly deep spirituality allows us to know how to set appropriate boundaries. Where we can walk in the life uh, really in a way that feels good and harmonious, but we do know how to set appropriate boundaries when they're necessary. Yeah. And, and when one sheds things, it's mostly stuff that are not helpful for you mentally. Now, it may get you ahead of the game in terms of, you know, uh, uh, position, societal position, and, and wealth and so forth, but it's, it's stuff that it's easy to see that it needs to go for one's well-being. I don't think it's a, you know, for most people, they wouldn't have difficulty. They just may not choose it. Well, we know that once a person's basic needs have been solved, shelter, Mm -hmm. clothing, food, spirituality is a topic that comes right up in the forefront of their conversations. We see this over and over across cultures. So. We have the ability as human beings to clothe and feed everyone on the the planet if we wanted to. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then spirituality would really be the conversation that we're having constantly about how we're all connected and and working to help one another. Right. 
Uh, so I, I had a question that how does how will spirituality transform us individually and a societal level? And you've you've addressed certainly the individual the individual level. Is there some sort of critical mass in your opinion? of people who, you know, they sometimes say it takes 15% or I've heard 20% of people to get the message before you get movement. And it, it, I'm sure it varies wildly. It, it was not a, a well, wonderful... Actually, I'd, I'd like to put it at a one-to-one -one level. One person one -to -one. who's transformed their life becomes, not just becomes peaceful, but becomes right. peace itself or love itself. And people will feel that when they're in their presence. I, I've often been sitting somewhere minding my own business and come, some stranger sits down next to me and says, I don't know what it is that you have, but how do I get it? And really they're feeling that sense of ease and peace that I'm being. Mm -hmm. So I think, yes, collectively put more and more of us together who are embodying and living this awakened way of being. And we have a tremendous force for good in the world. But I think at a very personal one-to-one -one level, if each of us were really taking time to nourish, say, this simple feeling of being daily and taking us into our daily interactions, people around us would start to notice and ask us what's different because you seem different and right. this is what i've heard from so many people i've worked right. with individually they go back to their offices they go back to their home life mm -hmm. and they come back to me and they said people are recognizing something is different about me and mm -hmm. is changing our interactions so i i like to think it's simple for each one of us becomes a transformative force for the world. And the more obviously there are, the more that transforming force becomes potent. Yeah, I, I, I can, I, I've heard that too. Um, you know, the, despite the atmosphere of fear of cool and I don't care, people are still scrutinizing others as thoroughly as they've done for centuries. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and aren't we? We're looking for role models. We're looking yes. for mentors. We're looking for people who yes. have something that we're all searching to get. I, and that was me when I was in my early 20s. I felt lost and bereft and depressed. I was looking for a mentor. I luckily found a number of them who really helped me grow into and blossom into this deep recognition of um, essence but we are all each looking outward for those kinds of resources and mirrors that can help us reflect back into ourself and awaken this innate force of spirituality that's within each of us yeah no but people notice and um and it also if you if you think about it what is the motive for scrutiny it's firstly not to to be too different if you're threatened by that sort of situation. The other thing is like FOMO, as I say, fear of missing out. Why am I not doing it? Why don't I have this and that? Uh, but but they also do feel like it's the mirror. You kind of this person's doing this and this. It looks very cookie cutter and boring. But how is it makes them reflect? But my life's very different. So. What exactly am I doing? And often when you look at what you've been doing, 
six weeks or six days or six hours, whatever you want it, however you want to take it, it is it can be vaguely disappointing. I mean, obviously, it depends on from individual to individual standards, expectations. You know, you're so bringing on. up a very crucial point. There's a beautiful saying, which is, whenever we separate from within ourselves, from an emotion, say we don't want to feel or a thought that we don't want to experience or a bodily sensation we want to repress, whenever we separate like that, we will always encounter some feeling of distress, anxiety, or fear within us as messengers Mm -hmm. that are trying to help us get back to those moments where we've separated and bring back the emotion, the thought, body sensation, so we can really metabolize it, heal it, work with it. And 99% of people in the world are carrying some feeling of distress or separation within them, not knowing what to do and looking outward for all sorts of mechanisms, whether it's alcohol or drugs or working too much in excessiveness or different ways of trying to heal this sense of inner distress Mm -hmm. that ultimately we need to look within and see this very simple question which i which i try to bring to people which is look within and ask where am i separating where is there an emotion that i'm denying some kind of thought or belief that i may be taking to be true that may not be or rejecting some particular thought, and where is there some particular body sensation or feeling that I'm not wanting to be with? And when we invite these in as messengers or Mm -hmm. signposts and deal with them, the distress goes away because it's been dealt with and the feelings of anxiety and fear that people are carrying begin to resolve and instead, this feeling of deep peace and well-being begin to come foreground as our daily life that we're feeling all day long. So it's a very simple inquiry at the heart of spirituality. Where am I separating? Where am I separating from myself, from others, from the world, from my emotions, my thoughts? And we need to take the time to become curious and inquire and heal these inner movements of separation that then will bring us to this deep peace that does path us all understanding and allow us to move in the world uh, in a way that we're being peace, setting boundaries when appropriate, and helping others who are suffering in turn. Right. What chance do we have of solving the multiple world crises, or as some would say, the pan crises? You know, now after saying that, it sounds like Trev, this is a bit of a this is a bit of a difficult. It's like almost more material for the Oracle of Apollo, but I apologize for that. Can Actually, this- I, I think it's an important question because people get lost in the tremendous uh, calamity of it, and what I like to say is. Each of us has been given a garden to tend. And we say life has sent each of us on a mission with a garden to tend. And I see everybody trying to tend everybody else's garden. If everybody kept it very Mm -hmm. simple and asked, what can I do 
that is just relevant to my life right here and now, we would find ways of taking care of the calamities that we see around us, whether it's climate change or economic, political issues. So I, I think it becomes very simple. We each need to look at our own life. What is my garden? Let me tend it. And then if somebody invites me to help them in their garden, so be it. Or I may invite someone into my garden. But we can keep it that simple. I think we each see behaviors that if we engage them, will go towards helping resolve these larger issues. Because some people are given very small gardens. I was talking to a woman the other day who was cutting my hair. And because we're in a drought where I live, she said, I keep a bucket in my shower and next to my sink and I capture any water that doesn't need to go down the drain. And then I use that for other purposes to water my garden, to feed my plants or to use for, for washing dishes at another time. That's a very small element, yeah. but very important. Another person's garden may be a much larger garden there working in a political arena or working in a government agency dealing with very large-scale problems. But again, if they see it as their garden, and they're not trying to change everybody else's garden, solutions are here. And they're, they're relatively easy when we keep it at this kind of very personal and simple level. Right. Um, yeah, when you look at the health outcomes for people who are spiritual, um, we notice that they have better mental health outcomes for sure, quality of life and so forth. And I've had this issue with chronic pain patients. They would say they felt uncomfortable to speak to physicians, some, some of their therapists, um, uh, you know, about their religious beliefs. And they were kind of surprised, or some were surprised, I should say, that I was very open to that. I said, well, if it's something that's been going on for a long time, or even if it hasn't gone on for a long time, that you have faith in and you find it a support, why would you turn your back on a resource that that's worked for you? Uh, you know, um, we don't have to get into mechanisms of action and stuff like that. And you, you need to you do your thing. Now, I'm not suggesting refusing treatment on that basis. I'm just saying carry on doing that. Because if you think about it, there's, you know, well, the, the, the stress caused by focus on illness or inability, um, impairment or incapacity is only going to rile the person physiologically to, until the internal environment is completely resistant to recovery or, or, or somewhat resistant to recovery. And, and they, meanwhile, get to outsource their anxiety. And, um, you know, just like, well, this is with the situation and I'm going to do what I can. Um, this leads to discomfort because I've had people who said, well, it's, is that not false hope? And I said, no, well, it's already I, I a source. I think your conversation here, your point, goes right to what I was saying a few moments ago, which is 
if we deny anything that's important or relevant in our life, it will leave a certain amount of distress that can also take the form of physical pain. Mm -hmm. So as you said, why would we want to deny something that might be a resource like our religious inquiry or a spiritual inquiry would, when if we've been denying it, it might actually be part of the problem we're experiencing as pain, whether it's physical or psychological, that moment of separation from anything will leave a sense of distress that can take the forms of physical pain. And I've noticed that when I help people who are in chronic pain, just let go of the concept pain and meet it as sensation, oftentimes a whole abundance of the pain that they're experiencing falls away because they're more meeting the pain conceptually than actually at its heart experientially. But if somebody has a deep religious calling and they're denying it, I've seen that manifest in so many ways psychologically and physically as ailments that when they finally embrace what they've been denying, the pain sometimes magically disappears. And I've given meditations with people going in with chronic pain that at the end of the meditation, because part of the meditation was dealing with emotions, thoughts, and places where they were separating within themselves, they've come out of the meditations basically saying, I, I don't know what's going on here, but I'm no longer feeling the pain that I was feeling before. Why is that? And my simple answer is you've stopped separating at some level within yourself mm -hmm. as that healing has occurred so goes the pain that was associated with it as a signpost to help you get back to working with it so yeah i, I love to explore as i hear you doing when someone comes in with whatever issue whether it's chronic pain or chronic yeah. suffering psychologically what might they be separating from within right. that might be contributing? And if we can help relieve that, then we can look at what physical or other issues may be going on that also need to be dealt with. As you say, we don't want to deny a medical treatment. That would be um, uh, ridiculous. We want to use all the tools that are right. available to us. Yeah, and, 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 you know, the mental side being the driver of everything and the one most connected towards the, the stress experience. Well, tell me, and I, I would wonder this, which is so many people come to a medical doctor such as yourself and the doctor treats them as an object and sees their pain but doesn't necessarily see them. And what I hear you doing is you're not just coming to them as a medical doctor, but as a human being who's here to listen and to hear what's going on with them. Because I think we, we all have that deep need to be feeling seen and heard. And many patients, when they go to a doctor, I've seen right. or a psychologist, when they really truly feel met as a human being, not as an object, right. and they really do feel seen and heard, a tremendous transformative healing can take place. Yeah, I, I must say I have on many occasions had the benefit of time, which I think most certainly family physicians don't have. 
So I have been able to do that, yes. Um, and, and at other times, not as well as I'd like to because of just these appointment times. I would, we're running out of time, um, uh, Richard. I just want to say for someone, one of our listeners in their middle or senior years, who may feel like they've taken too little care of the spirituality matter, much as what Bertrand, which is very much like Bertrand Russell, is said to have uttered on his deathbed. Um, I've read in, in one of the biographies. Um, can you recommend a simple plan for action of getting into this or start a pack, and as I use an everyday term, that can sort of, what do you recommend? Um, sure. Meditations and so forth. You know, the, the beauty here is we can take up this call at any age and no matter whether we're in deep physical pain or suffering at the end of our life, we can still have these transformative breakthroughs that give us that deep sense of peace. One of the simplest meditations is the one I offered today and lengthening it out. So each morning or during the day, little and often, we just take being breaks where we're just mm -hmm. simply taking a momentary time out where we move into a moment of pure perceiving and the felt sense of being and nourishing that foreground into our daily lives. I think it's important to obviously find a mentor or a spiritual teacher that can help guide us and having a, a reading that when we read it, it brings us back and reminds us again about this simple feeling of being so that we don't make spirituality and religion complex. No. It's really about opening our hearts with curiosity and openness it's like throwing open a window. We, we throw the window open using curiosity and openness. We can't make the breeze come in, but we can be available to it. And I think making ourselves available to moments of quiet and silence right. helps us see these places where we may have been separating from, bring small and little, but often healings that does evoke and bring this sense of deep peace that's innate within us to the foreground of our life. Richard, um, we're running out of time. This was wonderful. It was informational, enjoyable, and nourishing. It's not a word I use very often in this context, but I can think of no better <laughs> word. You know, I, I'm, I'm going to say this. It's, it's not a joke. I think we have a series here. But um, anyway, I'm sure the opportunity will, will, will come up again to speak. I thank you very much. Uh, you have been listening to Healthscape with your host, Dr. Trevor Campbell, uh, interviewing Dr. Richard Miller. Um, the topic is uh, spirituality and transformation, a, a demythification. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Healthscape with Dr. Trevor Campbell. We hope you'll join us again next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time and 12 noon Pacific Time or listen anytime on demand on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a healthy week.